Chapter 7 Murder and Sacrifice The suspension of the taboo surrounding death for religious reasons, sacrifice, and animals regarded as sacred beings. The unleashed desire to kill that we call war goes far beyond the realm of religious activity. Sacrifice, though, while like war, a suspension of the commandment not to kill, is the religious act above all others. True, sacrifice is looked on basically as an offering, not necessarily as a bloody affair. Notice that most often the victims are animals, often slain as substitutes for men. For, as civilization developed, the sacrifice of human beings seemed horrible. But this was not in the first place the reason for sacrificing animals. Human sacrifice is a recent thing, and the victims of the earliest sacrifices known to us were animals. It looks as though the gulf that now separates man and beast came after the domestication of animals, and that occurred in Neolithic times. Certainly, taboos tended to separate beast from man, as only man observes them, but primitive man saw the animals as no different from himself except that, as creatures not subject to the dictates of taboos, they were originally regarded as more sacred, more godlike than man. The most ancient gods were largely animals, immune to the taboos which set fundamental limits to man's sovereignty. To begin with, the killing of an animal may well have aroused a powerful feeling of sacrilege, and performed collectively would consecrate the victim and confer a sort of godhead on it. As an animal, the victim was an object of superstition already because of the curse laid upon violence, for animals never forsake their heedless violence that is the very breath of their life. But as the first men saw it, animals must know the basic laws. They could not fail to be aware that the mainspring of their being, their violence, was a violation of that law. They broke it deliberately and consciously. But in death, violence reaches its climax, and in death, they are wholly and unreservedly in its power. Such a divinely violent manifestation of violence elevates the victim above the humdrum world where men live out their calculated lives. Compared with these, death and violence are a sort of delirium. They cannot stop at the limits traced by respect and custom, which give human life its social pattern. To the primitive consciousness, death can only be the result of an offence, a failure to obey. Again, death turns the rightful order topsy-turvy. Death puts the finishing touch to the sinfulness that characterises animals. It penetrates to the very depth of the animal's being, and the bloody ritual reveals these secret depths. Let us return now to the thesis suggested in the introduction that, for us, as discontinuous beings, death implies the continuity of being. On sacrifice, I wrote, The victim dies, and the spectators share in what his death reveals. This is what religious historians call the sacramental element. This sacramental element is the revelation of continuity through the death of a discontinuous being to those who watch it as a solemn rite. A violent death disrupts the creature's discontinuity. What remains? 
What the tense onlookers experience in the succeeding silence is the continuity of all existence with which the victim is now one. Only a spectacular killing carried out as the solemn and collective nature of religion dictates has the power to reveal what normally escapes notice. We should, incidentally, be unable to imagine what goes on in the secret hidden depths of the minds of the bystanders if we could not call on our own personal religious experiences, if only childhood ones. Everything leads us to the conclusion that, in essence, the sacramental quality of the primitive sacrifices is analogous to the comparable element in contemporary religions. To relate that to my present argument, I should say that divine continuity is linked with the transgression of the law on which the order of discontinuous beings is built. Men as discontinuous beings try to maintain their separate existences, but death, or at least the contemplation of death, brings them back to continuity. This is of primary importance. As taboos come into play, man became distinct from the animals. He attempted to set himself free from the excessive domination of death and reproductive activity, of violence that is, under whose sway animals are helpless. But under the secondary influence of transgression, man drew near to the animals once more. He saw how animals escape the rule of taboos and remain open to the violence the excess, that is, that reigns in the realms of death and reproduction. It appears that this secondary accord between man and the animals, this rebound, as it were, belongs to the era of the cave paintings, to human beings as we know them, coming after Neanderthal man who was still close to the anthropoids. These men left the wonderful pictures of animals familiar to us today, but they rarely depicted themselves, and if they did they disguised themselves first, so to speak. They hid behind the features of some animal or other, with whose mask they covered their own face. The more accurate drawings of men have this curious characteristic at any rate. Humanity must have been ashamed of itself at that time, not of its underlying animality as we are. It did not reverse its earlier fundamental decisions. Upper Paleolithic man had upheld the taboos relating to death. He had gone on burying the bodies of those near to him. We have no reason to doubt besides that he was no stranger to sexual taboos, probably known to Neanderthal men. The taboos bearing on incest and menstruation that are at the bottom of all our behaviour patterns. But the accord with animal nature made the unilateral form of a taboo impossible to observe. It would be hard to point to a well-defined difference in structure between the Middle Paleolithic the time of Neanderthal man, and the Upper Paleolithic, when rituals of transgression must have begun to spread. As we know both from the habits of primitive peoples and from documentary evidence of antiquity, we are in the realms of hypothesis, but we are entitled to believe that if the hunters of the painted caves did practice sympathetic magic, as is generally admitted, they felt at the same time that animal nature was sacred. This quality implies the observation of the oldest taboos, and at the same time a limited degree of transgression, comparable with that which occurred later. As soon as human beings give rein to animal nature in some way, we enter the world of transgression, forming the synthesis between animal nature and humanity, through the persistence of the taboo. 
we enter a sacred world, a world of holy things. What shapes this change, assumed we do not know, nor where the sacrifices took place, nor a great deal about erotic life in those far-off days. All we can do is refer to the frequent ithophallic representations of men. But we do know that this newborn world held animal nature as divine, and must have been stirred by the spirit of transgression from the very beginning. The spirit of transgression is the animal god dying, the god whose death sets violence in motion, who remains untouched by the taboos restraining humanity. Taboos do not in fact concern either the real animal sphere or the field of human myth. They do not concern all-powerful men whose human nature is concealed beneath an animal's mask. The spirit of the early world is impossible to grasp at first. It is the natural world mingled with the divine, yet it can be readily imagined by anybody whose thought is in step with the processes. It is the human world, shaped by a denial of animality or nature, denying itself and reaching beyond itself in the second denial though not returning to what it had rejected in the first place. The world seen in these terms is certainly not that of the Upper Paleolithic. To assume that it was the world of the men of the painted caves makes the period and its products easy to understand, but we cannot be sure that it came into existence until a later date known to us through earliest history, and its existence is confirmed by the findings of ethnography, the modern scientific observation of primitive peoples. To Greeks and Egyptians of historical times, the animals had suggested a sovereign existence and given them the first images of their gods, exalted by death and sacrifice. These images must be seen as part of an extension of the picture I have already tried to give of the world of the early hunters. I was bound to mention this world first, for then animal nature formed a cathedral, as it were, within which human violence could be centred and condensed. The animality of the cave paintings and the domain of animal sacrifice cannot in fact be understood, one without the other. What we know of animal sacrifice opens a way to an understanding of the painted caves, and they help us to comprehend animal sacrifice. Beyond Anguish The feeling of anguish responsible for the earliest taboos showed man's refusal or withdrawal in face of the blind surge of life. The first men, their conscience, awoken by work, felt uneasy before the dizzy succession of the new birth and inevitable death. Looked at as a whole life, life is the huge movement made up of reproduction and death. Life brings forth ceaselessly, but only in order to swallow up what she has produced. The first men were confusedly aware of this. They denied death and the cycle of reproduction by means of taboos. They never contained themselves within this denial, however, or, if they did so, it was in order to step outside of it as quickly as possible. They came out as they had gone in with brusque determination. Anguish is what makes humankind, it seems. Not anguish alone, but anguish transcended in the act of transcending it. Life is essentially extravagant, drawing on its forces and its reserves unchecked. Unchecked, it annihilates what it has created. The multitude of living beings is passive in this process, yet in the end we resolutely desire that which imperils our life. We are not always strong enough to will this. We come to an end of our resources and sometimes desire is impotent. 
If the danger is too great, if death is inevitable, then the desire is generally inhibited. But if good luck favours us, the thing we desire most ardently is the most likely to drag us into wild extravagance and to ruin us. Different people stand up in different ways to great losses of energy or money or to the serious threat of death. As far as they are able, it is a quantitative matter of strength. Men seek out the greatest losses and the greatest dangers. We tend to believe the opposite because men's strength is usually slight. But if a good measure of strength does fall to them, they immediately want to spend themselves and lay themselves bare to danger. Anyone with the strength and the means is continually spending and endangering himself. By way of illustrating these assertions, valid in a general sense, I shall leave very early times and primitive customs for the moment. I should like to put forward for consideration a familiar phenomenon experienced by the great mass of humanity among whom we live. I refer to the commonest form of literature, popular detective novels. These books are usually about the misfortunes of the hero and the threats which besiege him. Without his difficulties and his fears, there would be nothing in his life to hold and excite the reader and make him identify himself with the hero as he peruses his adventures. The gratuitous nature of the novels and the fact that the reader is anyway safe from danger usually prevent him from seeing this very clearly. But we live vicariously in a way that our lack of energy forbids us in real life. Without too much personal discomfort, we experience the feeling of losing, or of being in danger that somebody else's adventures supply. If we had infinite moral resources, we should like to live like this ourselves. Which of us has not dreamed of himself as the hero of a book? Prudence, or cowardice, is stronger than this wish. But if we think of our deepest desires, which frailty alone forbids us to realise, the stories we read so eagerly will show us their nature. Following upon religion, literature is in fact religion's heir. A sacrifice is a novel, a story, illustrated in a bloody fashion, or rather a rudimentary form of stage drama reduced to the final episode where the human or animal victim acts it out alone until his death. Ritual ceremonies are certainly dramatic versions repeated on a certain date of a myth, of the death of a god. There is nothing here that should surprise us. In a symbolic form, this happens every day at the sacrifice of the mass. Anguish always works in the same way. The greatest anguish, the anguish in the face of death, is what men desire in order to transcend it beyond death and ruination. But it can be overcome like this on one condition only, namely that the anguish shall be appropriate to the spirit of the man who desires it. Anguish is desired and sacrificed to the greatest possible extent, but when the bounds of the possible are overreached, a recoil is inevitable. Human sacrifice often takes the place of animal sacrifice. No doubt as the distance between man and animal increases, and the death of an animal partly loses its power to disturb and terrify. Later, on the other hand, as civilization grew, animal victims would sometimes replace human ones as a less barbarous sacrifice. Quite late, the bloody sacrifices of the Israelites were felt to be repugnant, and Christians have only ever known symbolic sacrifice. Man had to move in harmony with an extravagance of nature, ending in the profusion of death. But he still had to have the strength to do this. Otherwise, a feeling of nausea would gain the upper hand, and 
reinforce the taboos.